0: So Paul's in the middle of the gifts, and he stops and he says, hey, you can be the most gifted dude or dudette in the world. And Corinthians was a very gifted church. But if you don't have love, you are nothing. It's worse than worthless, right? So Justin, in in his own manner, preached on love, uh, but also really, he looked at Matthew 18 and preached on how it's it's a measure of our maturity in the Lord, how well we receive, not how much we do for the Lord, but how how well we receive from him because he has done everything necessary and he gives himself to us and that is who we walk in and breathe in and have our life in. And so um, he talked a lot about children how children are in a lot of ways our example. Jesus says, unless you're like a child, not childish, but unless you're like a child, you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And Justin, among other many great things, said, that children, you don't have to teach them to ask for stuff. They are professional askers. They will ask you and ask you and ask you and ask you until, I don't know, in my case, either blow up or give them what they want, you know? Um, not good parenting advice. But no, they are, they are great at asking, and God wants us to be persistent askers and just to say, Lord, you've given, you've given me your very self. What, what more could you give me? And so um, he preached on that, and I, I just want to, um, first of all, say within that that this woman... Is, is childlike in the way that she comes to God in Christ and just throws herself on him. You, you know, kids do that. Um, and so I, 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 this is me wanting this for me. This is a selfish sidestep for me and saying, I just want to spend one more week looking at love. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13. Luke talks about it here by showing us this, this historical moment. And we get to peer into this window of this woman desperately loving her savior and I want this for my so don't think in any way I am preaching this at you I'm preaching this to me and I just want to come in together and look at this and plead for this from the Lord so I've rarely been as excited about a sermon so I pray Holy Spirit that you'd come and have your way um so I'd written this sermon and this introduction, and I just wanted to start out by talking about Aretha Franklin. She has that wonderful song, Respect, okay? And I, I made the mistake probably, it wasn't a mistake, but I think some people got offended a few weeks ago when I mentioned, I dissed, uh, I, I used um, Frank Sinatra's song, My Way. It's a great song, but it's, I, I called it the anthem of hell in, in some ways. And I, there was like a groan, and then I heard, I heard later that, you know, I'm going to leave the church because you dissed, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra. No, but some people were, had their feathers ruffled, and sorry about that. Uh, I love Frank Sinatra. I love Aretha, too. But respect, it's a great song, but this, uh, what this lady does is the exact opposite of demanding the kind of respect that Aretha demands. And no, again, nothing against Aretha. Any respect that she might have tried to garner, she just casts aside. So I just want to look at what I, I, we are, I just feel like we so, especially in this area, we're so tempted to be respectable, even in the ways that we love our Lord. And I feel like this lady, looking at her as a picture of love, I want the Lord to strip me of any desire for respectability in the, by my peers in the way that I go after my Savior. See what I'm saying? True respect is gained in other ways, but we so crave to be dignified, and I so want to be dignified in the way that I love the Lord, but this lady is not. She's just not. So, Um, right before this episode, Jesus says this in Luke 7, 23. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And the word there is scandalizo, scandaliste, scandalized. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. And there's so much in this passage that I am so scandalized. The way this woman loves Jesus, I'm scandalized by it. So I just want to look at it together, and this is me preaching to me. So please join me. Um, Let's just look at the center We're looking at the sinner, we're looking at Simon, and we're looking at Jesus. Three simple points this morning. The sinner, Simon, and Jesus. So let's look at the sinner first, the woman. Um, Luke says that what we have here in this woman is she's a woman of the city, and she's a sinner. So what that probably means is that she is a prostitute, and it almost certainly means that she's loose sexually, okay? And she's known in, it's not like she lives in a city of three million people. She's known. She's known. And that's her reputation, okay? And she comes into basically uh, a dignified meeting of pastors that are sitting around the table with a rabbi, with Jesus. And so um, we're going to look at that together. But she's a, she was a sinner. She was known as such. Um, the text says who was a sinner. That's a good, that's a, the ESV translation is a good translation of the Greek. Erasmus, a scholar around the time of Martin Luther 500 years ago, he was a humanist and a great Greek scholar. He wrote his own New Testament um, translation. He translates this, who had been a sinner as if she had kind of gotten rid of her sinful ways before coming to Jesus. Um, But the Greek gives no such sense. It's the imperfect, which is past with present implications, okay? So she came, the point is this, not a Greek lesson, the point is this. She came to Jesus as she was, a sinner. Probably still in her sin, definitely still known as a sinner, yet she took courage and approached him. As she was. It was like she was being magnetically pulled by his compassion, mercy, and grace. And I just want to say to you, friend, this is how we have to come to Jesus. There is no other way. You can't clean yourself up first. You can't do it. It's not possible. It's like cleaning yourself up. I've used this before, but it's effective. Before you get in the shower. That's not what we do. It doesn't make any sense. It makes even less sense to try to do so before coming to Jesus. You get in the shower to get clean. That's the point of a shower and soap. I should teach my kids this. (laughs) Jesus says, come as you are. I alone, it's why I came to make you clean. It's what I do. It's what I'm about. When Luke calls her a sinner in verse 37, he doesn't put the word in quotes, it's what she is. He's calling a spade a spade. And notice Jesus calls her, he calls her, spade, her sin a sin. She sinned much, Jesus says. Um, Simon called her a sinner and the woman knew that she was a sinner. Philip Reichen says this is exactly why she was drawn to Jesus. She knew she needed to be forgiven. People that know they need forgiveness are drawn to Jesus when they understand who he is and how he came, he passed through the heavens to come rescue He loves to do it. Um, I want to talk about the space just for a a short, a hot minute. Um, It was the court, a courtyard. So, when we read that she came into where they were eating, we kind of think, okay, closed doors. She opened the door. How did she see them? It was more of an open courtyard setting, most likely. Um, And it was kind of like somebody, one commentator says, walking up to a picnic. So, it would have been not super strange for someone to walk in. Sort of like uh, it wasn't a private event, says another commentator, and. Um, people could have spectated, it would have been fairly normal as these men gathered to talk and to eat. Um, there are open, live exams called Vivas in Britain and um, the post, they're postgraduate exams largely and they are public, semi-public, they're posted at the ancient British universities, pro- possibly European as well, possibly in America, I don't know, I know Britain better um, and they're posted the time of the exam and the examiner and the examinee, they're posted. And so people can come by and spectate. And that's kind of what this would have been like. Um, so she comes in. But at the same time, she, she would have known she was not welcome at this house. Because this is a bunch of respectable, dignified men, most likely, upstanding religious leaders. Therefore, she took courage in coming. She took courage. And, and I want to say, we need, I admire that about her. Um, let's, let's, I want to talk about the feet for a little bit too. Washing the feet, to us, that's, that's, that's a humble thing to do, but to them, that was even more of a humble thing. It was basically like saying, I am the servant, I am your servant. Um, feet were way dirtier then because people wore sandals and, and the, the, there, was, there wasn't concrete, so everything was dirt and dust. And this was something, that one commentator says, washing feet was a menial, quote, menial task reserved for slaves. There's so much humility in intimacy in this gesture, in this washing of the feet. She does it with utter abandon. Um, and so, verse 37, uh, when she heard, she brought the ointment. So we know that she heard he was there, and this was a predetermined thing. She grabbed something, maybe the most valuable thing she had in her house, and she walked, she took courage, and she walked to this, to Simon's house. What she did is she chose esteem, uh, his esteem, Jesus' esteem, over the esteem of other people. She cared more about what Jesus thought about her. That was the driver for her than what anybody else thought. And can I confess? Can I be the first to confess and the loudest to confess that often is not the driver for me? It's often what do other people think? I'm often driven by fear of man and the, and the coveted esteem of man. But this lady has so much to teach. This prostitute has so much to teach me and I think us. So it wasn't just a flight of fancy or, or passion, it was premeditated. She grabbed the ointment, she made a beeline, but, but she was grabbed when she got into the presence of Jesus. Do you know what that's like? I mean, if you don't, and most of you do to some extent, just Justin, like he, he, anytime he's up here, you can just say, what's it like? Oh, Justin. You know, anytime he gets before the Lord, he just starts weeping. This is what this lady did, but, but I wasn't going to say worse, but uh, more spectacular. Um, she's just a waterworks Let's talk about the alabaster flask for a bit. So it's a globular in shape. It's got a long neck. It's broken when it's applied, so there's no, like, screw on top. So it's all or nothing, which is so the way this, that says everything about this encounter. And it's probably, it was probably quite expensive, and this lady was a prostitute, and so it could have well been, and people back then, they didn't put money into bank accounts. They had their money in things, so this could have been her wealth. Her wealth, her worth poured out, poured out all at once on Jesus, and yet she gives him something even more valuable than that. Um, And so the scene, he's not sitting at a table, he's reclining, it says in the text, um, verse 36, and so his feet are out, and everyone's kind of leaning on an arm, Middle Eastern style, and eating with the other arm, and talking, and his feet are out, and all the feet which are dirty in, in the ancient Near East, um, not just physically dirty, but the sort of, you don't like point your foot at someone, it's an insult. They're out; they're sort of radiating outward. And she comes, and let's talk about the tears now. We talked about the feet, let's talk about the tears. She comes and the text says, if you read it carefully, I kind of imagined at first before I got into this thing, she just dove down at his feet. No, she, it says she is standing over him, like kind of respectfully, sort of tentatively, because I know I'm not welcome here, but I'm so, dr- I'm so compelled, I'm pulled toward this man. Who's so full of forgiveness, and I feel such love and no judgment from him. And she's standing over his feet, which are out from the table, and she's just weeping, and it's like falling five feet down onto his feet. And it says so; it, it, it she's crying so much that his feet are just getting just fully wet from her tears as they fall. And so I think it's from that that she's just like, "Man, I got to do something about this." And she goes down. Okay, she goes down. Um, It just, she's ruined right here in front of Jesus and these men. And think about what this is. She falls down on her knees almost involuntarily because she's in his presence. Because his person evokes this guttural response from within her. She's on her knees crying, anointing, giving all of who she is. This is worship. This is worship. And this is what true worship looks like. So her hair we talked about her tears, talked about her feet a little bit, um, talked about the space. Let's talk about her hair briefly. Um, when she, it's, okay, so she's crying on his feet. And she's like, man, I got to do something about this. She starts anointing his feet. She's brought this thing. She breaks it, pours out everything, and his, everything's just a mess. Cleansed, beautiful and rich and strong-smelling, but a mess. And so she doesn't have a towel, and she probably didn't plan on crying all over him. So she gets down on her feet and there's no towel cuz Simon hasn't provided one and she probably didn't plan on it and she just un- <laughs> she undoes her hair and that is probably the thing that we're least culturally familiar with because still today in the anci- in the in the Middle East but certainly in the ancient near east to let down your hair your long beautiful hair as a woman that's something you only did really in the bedroom in the house with trusted people it's an intimate gesture And what she does is she lets her hair down in front of all these men because she just decides, I'm just going to use it. It's an act of intimacy and love. It's also practical. She's using, she doesn't say, no, I can't do that. My hair would get, she just uses everything she has and starts to wipe his feet off with her hair. It is scandalous enough, but then she goes from there. And this is the most scandalous thing. It just like increases in scandal from bit to bit to bit. She starts... She's down on his feet. She's just wet them with her saline tears. And then she's pulled her hair down, and she's wiping them after she's anointed him. And then, again, driven by worship of this man, what does she start to do? She just starts to kiss his feet. And the Greek is a participle, which just means it's an ongoing action. She doesn't just kiss his feet. I'm going to plant a kiss. Okay, that was weird. No. She starts to kiss his feet and she just continues to kiss. She cannot help herself to show everything she has to show how much, how much she loves this man. Reichen, Philip Riken again, he calls it an act of holy extravagance. She was acting as if she and Jesus were the only two people in the world. Wow, I, want, I so want this. I so want this. To not care about what other people are thinking, but to fixate on my Redeemer, my Maker. And she does. This is worship. And she's using what she knows and what she has. The tools of her trade, hands, hairs, tears, perfume, kisses. She was a prostitute. She's using what she has. And again, this is what God takes and receives gladly. And he says, just come as you are. And I will use what you have and who you are and turn it into worship. That's what Jesus does. That is what Jesus does. Um. If you're looking for balance, this is probably not the best sermon to find it. This is an all-in episode. This isn't is aban- a person that is abandoned before her maker and redeemer episode. Okay? Proverbs has a ton on balance. The Bible speaks a lot on balance. It's a good thing most of the time. In the worship of our Savior, not so much. But in another way, I want to say that there is balance here in a big way, okay? You will go all in, abandoned on something in your life. If it is not the living God, if it is not the person of Jesus Christ, it will be something. It might be work. It might be money in the bank account. It might be your stuff, your bling. It might be a spouse. It might be... The idea of a spouse, it might be a boyfriend or girlfriend, it might be a child, it might be just people's esteem. I mean, I could go on, it might be sports, it could be, we, we are made to worship. There's no, everybody worships. If you go after, if you abandon yourself, and you will, to anything but Jesus, friend, what will happen? It's like carrying a 50 pound or 100 pound weight in one, on one hand. You, you will not be able to stay straight. It will cause you to start walking walking in circles, and eventually you will break down. You will be utterly out of balance. Jesus alone, the triune God, who draws us into his perfect, beautiful, soul-satisfying fellowship through Jesus Christ, he is the only one that we can go all in and abandon for. And actually, it's like, it's like a, we are shaken stirred and then we pour what we we give all of ourselves to god if we give all of ourselves to anything else utter utter imbalance and eventually consumed by that thing and empty but if we give all of ourselves to jesus like this woman does what happens is more of us overflows starts to overflow and and trickles down into every area of our life and there's more than enough for everything and we find balance through that rightly ordered love in in that alone So there's a sense in which this is an extremely imbalanced episode, but it leads to extreme life balance, okay? Let's talk about, let's talk about Simon, we've talked about the sinner, let's talk about Simon briefly. Um, One of the things that I think is the most, uh, gives us the most insight into this passage is verse 39. He says, if this man knew, he said he's definitely not a prophet, why? Because if he knew what sort of woman it was who's touching him? That's a euphemism in a lot of ways. She's touching him. Okay. What sort of woman? Translation: She's not a righteous person like me. Okay. She's not. A, in other words, he's separating himself from her. And Philip Riken said that, and he goes on to say he rejoiced at her wrongdoing. He's talking about First Corinthians thirteen six. It says love does not rejoice um, in wrong but with the truth, rather. And he let it fuel his own spiritual pride. As long as we can find someone that's more of a sinner than we are, we can feel like we're doing okay. And that's the huge mistake that Simon makes here. She's not, okay, if he knew what sort of person, in other words, I'm not that sort of person. Okay, that was his huge mistake. Um, a commentator goes on to say, for all of this theology and morality, and this man had a lot of it. He probably had massive chunks of the scriptures memorized. This man simply did not know how to love. This passage is just 100% about love. God is seeking lovers, okay? Um, he offered Jesus none of the customary ancient Near Eastern courtesies of a host to a guest, as I said, and as Jesus says to him, much more an honored guest like Jesus. And he didn't even know who he had in his house. But we do. Um, but then Philip Riken, he lowers the boom. He says, if we're honest, we have to admit that our hearts can be every bit as loveless. Have you, have you done even one thing this week that showed Jesus, the extravagant love of a forgiven sinner. Remember what I said earlier. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. And I have to say no to this, but I also have to say that I've seen glimpses, quite a few, of late in this body of people pouring out love in extravagant, can I say costly ways? Expensive, ir- um, disreputable, not respectable for Jesus as a love offering and it just makes me so happy and it challenges me and it's one of the reasons I wanted to soak here. I want that. And if you don't know how to apply this, we'll get to that at the end. Just, Jesus, I want this, please put this in me. Help me to see you as this woman saw you, as you are, okay? Um, Simon did not love very much because he was, he was not forgiven very much. But he was not forgiven very much because he did not think he had much to be forgiven for. And that is his mistake. Um, the other encounter, very similar to this one, that's in the Gospels that you might have thought of or might have thought when we first read it, oh, this is that. It's a, an encounter that it's different. It's a different historical episode. They're very similar, though, so we can kind of conflate them. Um, it's right before Jesus' passion or cross, and suffering, and it's Mary of Bethany, not a sinner, not a prostitute, but uh, she was a sinner as well, but she wasn't known as a notorious sinner. Mary of Bethany, who was close to Jesus, she was the one who had Martha as a sister, and she just loved sitting at the feet of Jesus, and uh, she takes a, a thing of nard, this could have been nard, we don't know, um, but it was worth about a year's wages, so let's say 50, 70, $100,000, um, and she pours it out over Jesus' feet, um, so it's a little different episode, um, and it's also in the house of Simon, popular name at the time, the leper, not, not the Pharisees. So this guy was a, uh, probably a leper, an untouchable that Jesus had healed because they probably wouldn't have been sitting around with him at the table. So you talk about grateful, and Mary is grateful too, and so she just gives her most costly thing to Jesus. Different episode. Um, but I bring it up because you know what happens, most of you do, during that scene. How do the disciples react? When Mary of Bethany pours out her most expensive, let's, talk, let's say $100,000, one gesture, 100K on his feet, how do the disciples react? Are they like, man, well spent? The text says they were, the word it uses is indignant, furious, a righteous anger. They thought it was righteous. Don't. We rarely get righteously angry. Um, usually it's just anger we need to repent of. Um, but they got furious, they were indignant, and they said, what a waste. We could, have spent, we could have sold this and spent it on the poor. And the guy leading the pack was Judas. Because you know what happens next? The very next scene, the very next scene, that's when Judas goes. Right after that scene, he's had enough. And he goes and he makes plans to betray Christ. Um, can I just say, if this sort of extravagant love poured out for Jesus doesn't grip you, but instead offends you and makes you recoil, I'm not pointing the finger. I'm doing some diagnostics here, friend. I want you to hear something. You probably don't know Jesus, and you probably don't understand the gospel. And I'm not pointing my finger. I'm beckoning you. I'm, I, if that's your reaction, and hey, my reaction is, oh, I am embarrassed, but I, I want Paul and I want this. If your reaction is, "Man, I'm offended," and this is this extravagant display is disgusting, it offends me. I just want to say, I I want to beckon you to come before the living God and repent and say, "If you are who the Scriptures say you are, help me. I repent. Help me." Um, This is a heart condition passage. Um, There's hope for you. Let's repent. Let's behold the beauty of Jesus together now. Let's look at that in point three. So we've looked at the sinner. We've looked at Simon. Let's look at Jesus for the last 10 minutes we have together. Um, In verse 30 of this chapter, it says that the Pharisees rejected Jesus and God's purposes for them and their generation. Verse 30 of Luke 7. Uh, But here is Simon, a Pharisee, doing something that most Pharisees don't do. The Pharisees lead the pack in crucifying Christ. But this Pharisee, he's inviting Jesus in. He doesn't give him the customary honors, Fair. But he, he is doing something that most Pharisees don't do. He's inviting Jesus into his home. He's honoring him. He wants to know him. He wants to hear about what Jesus is about. I mean, kind of Nicodemus-esque in John 3. Um, and so that, that's a good thing. If I were Jesus, thank God I'm not for so many reasons, I would have been like trying to, okay, um, you're on my team. I need to be nice to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to garner your trust and support. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus blows him up because Jesus is afraid of no man, and he always gives us what we need. He always gives us what, what we need. Um, Simon is scandalized by, by Jesus's, not just by what happens, but check this out. This, I haven't even mentioned the most scandalous part yet. It's Jesus. His reception of all that. He doesn't say, no, 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 whoa, 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 that's embarrassing. Please stop you. I don't deserve that. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do any of that. He receives all of it, and he makes her the poster child for how he wants us to be. Simon. I got none of this from you, not even close, but look at this woman. She's poured out everything. She's poured out everything. Look at her response. This is a right response. And that is quite scandalous. Man, if someone started kissing all over your feet at dinner, any of us would be like, and rightly so. God, no, 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 not now, not here. What, never. Like, what are you doing, you know? Um, but Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He encourages the kissing, the kissing and the washing and the wiping and the crying over his feet even by a notorious, scandalous sinner. Um, He's astonishingly good, Jesus is, at receiving love and at receiving worship. And it's unexpected because he's not a megalomaniac. He's not full of himself. If you're a megalomaniac, you bring it on. Any worship, come on. He's the opposite of that. He's humble. He loves to spend time with the humble, with sinners. Um, He washes his disciples' feet as one of the last gestures while he's on this earth before he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross for us. So he's humble, and yet he receives this lavish outpouring of affection and this worship. And I want to go so far as to say he commands it. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said this. Uh, he's asked, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the scriptures clearly reveal Jesus to be God in flesh, to be God among us. So what we, are, what we are recognizing here is the Shema, what I just read, the number one command in the Old Testament. What are we made for? What do all the law and the prophets, the entire scriptures hang on? This command, to love God with everything we are. And he's saying, she is doing it. That's what we're made for. That is what we're made for. And he is receiving it, and in receiving it, he is saying, I am the God who made each of you to love me with everything you are, and I receive it. And you won't be satisfied until that happens. Pouring yourself on anything else, you will not be satisfied. And as you hear this, some of you don't believe that. It's going to take years and heartache for you to come to believe that, and I pray that you do. But I pray that that doesn't have to happen. I pray that God gives you faith and trust to believe that now. He's not just our creator who made us for himself, he's our redeemer who, who, Pay, who, who, paid the ultimate price to, to bring us back to his father. Okay? Matthew Henry says this. He's an old commentator. He says this on this text. He says, none can truly perceive how precious Christ is and the glory of the gospel except the broken hearted. But while they feel they cannot enough express self-abhorrence on account of sin and admiration of his mercy, the self-sufficient, that's Simon, that's me sometimes, a lot of times, will be disgusted Because the gospel encourages such repenting sinners. The Pharisee, instead of rejoicing in the tokens of the woman's repentance, confined his thoughts to her former bad character. But without free forgiveness, none of us can escape the wrath to come. This our gracious Savior has purchased with his blood, that he may freely bestow it on everyone that believes in him. Um, In Jesus' parable to Simon, the one about the two debtors, one owed less and one owed more, but I don't know if you missed this. I did the first thousand times I read it. We owe, they owe different amounts to God, and we all owe different amounts to God. But this is also true, and this is in his parable. Neither could pay. Did you notice that? The one who owed 50, the one who owed 500, neither one could pay. That could not be more true of our situation. Whatever you owe God, and you owe God a particular amount for the offenses that you've accrued against him, friend. You cannot pay it. You can't pay it. You can't pay it, and neither can I. Matthew, Henry, again, learn here that sin is a debt, and all our sinners are debtors to Almighty God. Some sinners are great debtor, greater debtors, but whether our debt be more or less, it is more than we are able to pay. But that is the setup that makes the gospel such good news. Uh, there was someone who uh, taught, a, a, he was part of a class that we, that we took and taught in Britain. when we lived there, and he, he was an evangelist, and one of the uh, sort of two-minute condensations that he would give of the gospel, but when we share the gospel, it's good to share the whole thing, not just Jesus loves you, because what does that mean to someone necessarily, but the whole context into which Jesus stepped, which is what? Creation, decreation, or fall, recreation in Christ new creation, where we're headed, right? That whole context. We were made for this, but we fell. Okay, and there's something, there's something we feel in our bones wrong with us inside and with the world outside. Jesus came to restore that. But he tells it in, the, in a metaphor the story of a slap. It's, two minutes, it's a two minute thing, so he can kind of do it in an elevator or wherever he is. He calls it the slap, and he's like, man, if I slap you, and He's like, points to his friend, he's like, we're gonna have some words. He might try to punch me, a little shadow boxing, but uh, we'll make up eventually. And, uh, and we'll be fine. And he's like, man, if I punch um, the director of this program, like, in the face, that's going to be more of a problem. Or if I punch my employer. If I punch a peer, okay, if I punch my employer, a bigger deal. And he's like, he's in Britain, right? So he goes, this is, the saying this is almost blasphemous. He goes, if I punch the queen of England. It's like, whoa! Or if I slap. I've turned the story into a punch. But if I slap, he's, if I slap, it's also an insult to slap, you know, even more than a punch. If I slap the queen of England. He's like, I hate even saying that. He was at Oxford. He's like, I hate even saying that here, you know? And everybody's like, ooh. Um, He's like, man, the consequences. Same action in all three cases, right? Consequences are far worse. Why? Not because of the action, because of the recipient of the the offense. He's like, man, he's like, this is even worse to say if I slap God. An infinite being in every one of his attributes, he's infinite. So when we offend him, which our sin does, it's a slap to him. He is infinitely offended in his goodness, in his compassion, in his holiness, As he reaches out to us and reaches out to us. We are his creatures, and yet we slap him. That's what the, that's what the scriptures say. Um, that's what the scriptures say. And so, actually, um, the Old Testament shows us who it is that we slapped. And um, before I say that, let me just say, not only have we slapped God according to the scriptures, but we've done worse. We've, we have... Uh, lent ourselves out to other lovers. We've committed adultery. He's called us to himself an intimate relationship. He's made us for himself and we've gone, it's, it's as if in our sin we have slept with other lovers. We keep running away and sleeping with other lovers. There's a whole book that talks about this, the book of Hosea. It's an, he's an Old Testament prophet and he says, this is what each of us have done. We are all, in a sense, in the place of this prostitute. All of us. That's our condition. God takes our sin personally because he's good and he loves us. And um, when my friend found out About the book of Hosea, he moved from being a moralist, like, I'm a pretty good guy. He went to Oxford. He was a nice guy. That doesn't matter to God. To He read the book of Hosea and went, oh, and that's when he came to Christ because he realized, I can't make up for that offense. I can't do it. I can't do it. The Old Testament shows us who it is we slapped. The New Testament shows us God taking the rap. Um, I want to read Romans 3, starting in verse 21 to you with very little comment, Paul says this. He's building up to the, he's told us about the slap and how much we've offended God. And then in chapter 3, verse 21 of Romans, Paul says this. Some of the most blessed words in the whole Bible. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So not law keeping, but rather faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, Paul says, okay? We've all slapped God. For all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, listen to this, God put forward as a propitiation, I'll return back to that word, by his blood. Jesus was a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his former forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Propitiation means that Jesus, there was, we had accumulated a debt that we couldn't pay and because God is holy, sin makes him angry because he sees it destroying us and it has to be dealt with. Jesus stood in between us and a righteous God and he absorbed the wrath of God Almighty against our sin, which is why Paul goes on to say, because of what Christ has done in the gospel alone, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who places his faith in Jesus Christ, which means the sin, he's just, it's been paid for. He's no longer covering over it it and winking at it, as it were, that's biblical, okay, That, that kind of terminology. He doesn't wink at it. In Christ, he allows it to be fully paid for. Christ became sin for us who trust in him. He became our sin. He absorbed that wrath, and he can also be just and the justifier. He considers everyone who looks to Christ righteous because Christ transfers his record to, to yours and takes yours upon himself. That's what happened at the cross, and it was finished. It was finished. Um, Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. There's a story that Brett Hansen in his book Unoffendable, which I just finished and loved, um, tells about how he bought, he really needed a new car, could hardly afford it, his wife said okay, he bought a, like a Volkswagen Jetta, it was a diesel, and he went, again it was a diesel, and he went to the gas station, first time, yep, unleaded. You ever done that? Isn't that a terrible feeling? Ruined the car, like literally had driven it for 20 miles or something. And he just was devastated, and his wife was very gracious, but he ended up getting on his bike again and riding to work on his bike again. He had a basket, and he would, like, put his office stuff in his basket and ride uphill. And he just, like, I'm going to do this. I deserve this. I can't, get, I can't afford to get this fixed. And he was kind of doing penance, as it were, like, man, I'm such an idiot. And um, he called Volkswagen, and it took a while for them to assess it, and they came back and were like, we're going to fix it okay, for free. He's like, I guess it was like uh, they're they're trying to get customer loyalty and they sure got mine. Um, And he's like, man, I had a really hard time. Here's the point. Receiving that. Because he wanted to do something because he'd been such an idiot. But that's not the gospel, y'all. The gospel is he has done it all in Christ. Coming to him as you are. Remember, don't clean yourself up and then get in the shower. Um, He kind of tells another story about that. He just says, like, it's kind of like Um, I was up to bat four times, struck out four times, and then I was on deck, uh, bases loaded, and uh, a home run or a hit even would have won the game, and the guy that's batting hits a homer. We win. We win. Everyone wins. He's on the team. He wins, okay? Um, But he's still on deck having struck out four times. Everyone, uh, he says, we're still on the religious playing field trying to redeem ourselves, And God is popping the cork. You win. You win because of Jesus. We win. And you're just sitting there like, man, I really wanted to do something. Like, God is calling us to rejoice. He's calling us to join the party that Christ has won for us, that he is inviting us into. Think the prodigal son. Just come home. Just come home. Um, in In the story of the two debtors, Jesus says, which person will love him more? And can I just reiterate, this is what God is after. He's not after your performance. You can't do it, that's why he came. He's after your love. He is a lover and he has made us to love him. And again, like I said a few weeks ago on the 1 Corinthians 13 sermon, the Romans didn't even have a category for gods that wanted the, the love of their suppliants. That wasn't even a category in the ancient religion. But God wants us to love him more than anything. Um, people desperate for love were always drawn to Jesus, the friend of sinners. You cannot lavish too much love on him. Romans 12 verse 1 Paul says in light of everything God has done for us he says our it's often translated spiritual act of worship I'm not sure why I know that they know more than I do about Greek but it's literally the word in the Greek is logikane it's your logical or reasonable or rational response to God in light of the fact that God Almighty we deserving his wrath he should wipe the plate clean with us instead he comes down and absorbs it in our place. If that's true, this lady is the most logical person I have ever seen in my life. And I am not when I give God like half-hearted worship. I'm not even talking about raising your hands. I'm talking about life, man. I'm talking about giving everything I am to God and watching him shake it, stir it, and have it pour out into every area. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what I want. And I just want to ask God together, Lord, would you give us, would you give us that? Um... The men in the room, Simon among them, left with their dignity intact, which is, I'm not even going to say nice, but that's it. The woman left with maybe no dignity, but we're still talking about her today. She left her dignity, if she had any, but she left with everything else. Forgiveness of sins, life with God, peace, satisfaction. Um, Jesus says to her, go, Literally, the Greek is go into peace. It's translated typically go in peace, but he's saying you can now, because of what I've done, walk into a fullness of life and satisfaction forever because of what I've done for you and because of my love for you. And this passage is as attenuated and unrelated as it sounds to where we're headed in 1 Corinthians 14 about the gifts. It is not because it is a perfect prep in my mind to the prophetic conversation because what this lady does is she risks she risks for God. And what walking in the gifts held together by love is about, is about risking for God because of what he's done for us, laying everything aside and saying anything. You want me to go talk to that person? You want me to invite that person to my house? You want me to love this person in this way? How can I love you? You've done everything for me. I'm all yours. I'm all in. Give me what you will to build your body and see your kingdom come. I'm all in. Can we make that our prayer? We're not not there, but if we can make that Our prayer, that's what I'm preaching for. It's what I'm wanting. It's what I'm praying for. So a few brief things and then a close. Um, Ask him, Jack Deere's daily prayer. He's written a few of the books in the back. Um, His daily prayer is, Lord, would you help me to love your son like you love your son? Would you give me that same love? Would you put it in my heart and pour it out of me? Let's repent of our man fear and ask God to give us uh, fear of him. Spend time with him, cultivating that relationship Obey him, where he's called you to obey him, where he's revealed obedience clearly in his word and w- among his people. And, uh, you know, it, how can we, what can this abandoned love look like in our lives, at home, at work, with our neighbors? I, I don't, I could spend an hour. No, I'm not going to. But let me just say this instead. C.S. Lewis, and I read this quote a few weeks ago, I feel like what he said helps more. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the, that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I feel like when this takes hold, it's almost silly to apply it, it's like when this takes hold, God, would you cause this penny to drive down deeper and sink down deeper into my heart? This is the rational response. Would you make me an abandoned lover like this? Would you make me a scandalous lover like this? In response to what you've done? When this takes hold, it begins to, we see everything else. It flows out into every aspect of our lives. It's hard to compartmentalize. Let me finish with a story. Tony Campolo, he's kind of old school if you're older, you may have heard of him. Um, the Kingdom of God is a party is a book he wrote about a prostitute um, named Agnes and her 39th birthday. So he he's in Hon- Tony Campolo, true story. He's in Honolulu and it's 3:30 in the morning and he can't sleep because of jet lag. And he's in a diner and all these prostitutes, like a whole gang of prostitutes, come in and sit all around him. And he was about to get up and leave, because they were, they were just loud, and you know, he's like, what is going on here, and, and coarse and crass is what he says. And he's about to get up and leave, and then, and then one of them, her name is Agnes, starts, she mentions, like, off the cuff, she's like, yeah, tomorrow's my birthday. And like, oh, you want us to make you a cake? Do you want a gift? We should celebrate. And she's like, no, I've never gotten a gift. My birthday's never been celebrated. Um, I've never had a cake, so, like, why, why start now, you know? And so they kind of make fun of her and whatever else, and then they leave. And Campolo, uh, he goes up to the owner, Harry, of the diner, and he says, hey, man, um, what would you think about, he, he says, what was that lady's name, the one sitting next to me that her birthday's tomorrow? And he's like, her name's Agnes, why? And he goes, well, what would you think about, like, celebrating her birthday tomorrow, decking this place out, baking her a cake? He's like, Harry's like, oh, he says, do they come here every night? He goes, yeah, right at this time. So he says, what about, what about doing this tomorrow for her? And he's like, but Harry loved it, the diner owner. And the, the wife was in the kitchen cooking, and she got wind of it, and she's like, I'll make the cake. And so, Tony brings the decorations, they hang like bunting and everything, and it's again, 3.30 in the morning, the next night, and the cake's ready and the candles, and somehow word got out a little bit, and so like every, there were tons, it was just a bunch of, literally, it was a restaurant full of, a diner full of prostitutes come in and and descend on this place at 3.30 in the morning in Honolulu, and um, they surprise her, she walks in, and she loses it, loses it. First time she's ever been, her birthday's ever been, ever been celebrated. Happy birthday. And they sing to her. And she's, it's awkwardly, she's awkwardly quiet. And she's like, can I, can I take this cake home with me? Because I, I want to save it. And so they're like, crickets, you know? And so she takes it home. She's like, I'll be right back. So she takes it home. She must live close. Comes back. And he's like, before she came back, there was just this awkward silence. And so Campolo pipes up with, a, he's like, I just felt like I was supposed to pray. So he prayed. He said, I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. And then Harry, the, the owner of the diner, says, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. He's like, what kind of church do you belong to? And Campolo responds, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And the diner owner says, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. And then the, the guy that shares his story in the book, Unoffendable, he says, you know what? I have a new rule. I won't join a church that doesn't do that because that's the Jesus I recognize, the one who mends the brokenhearted and is never, ever scandalized by sinners. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. Y'all, let's be a church like that. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this word. I thank you that I can already see it taking effect in the lives of your people. It's so beautiful. Um, help us to know that we are all in the same boat. Lord, either standing outside of your mercy in a very, very, very dangerous place, trying to get clean on our own, or hiding in Christ by faith, clean and righteous before you. Lord, I, uh, we worship you. And I pray that our worship would make sense in light of what you've done. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, revive us. Amen. Uh, on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord, he took bread, the maker of the universe, your maker. He made your DNA. He's numbered the hairs on your head. Numbered. He's, he's named the stars. That was easy for him. You know, it's, can I use this word? You know it was hard? Paying the price to make us right before God. But he did it. He did it. On that night that he was betrayed, right before he went to make things right, he, uh, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, broken for you. I'm going to be broken so you can be made whole, so you don't have to. I'm your shield. And in the same way, he took, he took the wine and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine do so remembering me until I come again Um, we have some responsive readings and some prayers Um, let's go ahead and pray together with one voice the Lord's prayer our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven